the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, and to We Are All Flesh, the public programs for Belinda Zagorakis' exhibition. And we have, actually I should have thought about what I'd call this, there's too many to uh, sum it up into one concise little uh, fleshy bubble. Uh, so we will start um, by just giving you a very brief introduction to our panel for this evening. We have Martin Pedler, the chair, who is a writer and critic and will be um, guiding us through the talk. Next to Martin, we have Wendy Haslam, Robin Warner, Lance Proctor, Nick Haslam, and Adrian Richardson on the end. Uh, so we're going to be talking probably for about an hour and there's going to be a really big, great opportunity for a Q&A at the end of that. So sit on your questions until the end, unless you really cannot resist, in which case stand up and do a little wave and I'm sure Martin will be um, very happy for you to join in the conversation too. So I'm going to hand you over to Martin. Thank you for coming. Um, thanks so much for coming to what should be a really interesting night. I'm going to talk as little as possible because all of these people have much more interesting jobs than I do. Um, by way of introduction though, I did want to say that when I was a kid, I was deeply, deeply uncoordinated and crashed my bike into a stationary pole and split my leg open on the serrated metal pedal. And I remember looking at this wound that had opened up in my leg and was slowly opening more as I stared at it and looking at the colours and fat inside and thinking, oh, so that's what I'm made of. And then I probably nearly passed out. Um, so the, the idea of flesh plays out almost everywhere you look, um, from religious iconography to zombie movies, from high art to pornography, from life to death. And it's obviously a driving force behind the art you've seen here tonight. I think meat is an incredibly important and complicated thing in our lives and yet it's often the last thing we want to think about. Um, the logic behind the old motto of if a slaughterhouse had a glass walls, then everyone would be a vegetarian, doesn't apply to our guests tonight, who are inside the slaughterhouse, um, metaphorically or occasionally, literally. Um, so I guess the first question by way of introduction is how did these people end up in these particular fields of expertise? Wendy? Everyone. I'm Wendy Haslund and um, I teach cinema studies at Melbourne Uni. And um, one of the films that I teach through, particularly our first year group, I'm going to show you tonight just a little excerpt from. So um, I teach this film as a way of kind of um, exploring ideas about um, shock and confrontation. Usually it's a film that um, students um, remember from, uh, from many years after they've seen it. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, I wanted to say also, uh, firstly, that um, I'm really so pleased that ACCA has put this um, exhibition on. Um, really, it's the only place in Melbourne I think that we can see such a strong and really contemporary exhibition like this. So, you know, um, ACCA is, you know, really um, up there in my esteem for creating these incredibly challenging exhibitions. And um, I visited this exhibition yesterday to have a look. Um, as well, and was really um, confronted and really amazed by what I saw there. But I was also very aware of 
kind of processes of looking and how we might look at this exhibition. And this is um, something that I think that um, connects to film when I teach film as well. So thinking about going into this exhibition, seeing, you know, we are all flesh, um, kind of um, being aware of uh, my position watching these uh, exhibits, walking around these exhibits as well. Some of them uh, are positioned so that we can walk around them uh, 360 degrees, moving right around them, um, and that we can actually walk around and make a little bit more sense of what we're seeing as well. So their position through this century was also interested um, that, uh, and I did find a lot of the exhibits quite confronting and shocking as well, particularly the horses. And the horses for me are really about um, uh, offering you know, an image of fragility. So as much as we can see that, you know, the power in the horses, we also know that they are quite um, fragile as they are hung, you know, and there's a sense that, you know, anything can happen at any time. So those horses could fall. Um, there's a sense that, um, you know, they're also incomplete. They're incomplete as well, so there's no faces. So um, I really kind of um, confronted by and connect with the, the kind of the body and the frame of these amazing, really kind of uh, majestic creatures that are positioned kind of upside down and in hybrid positions in kind of wrapped around one another as well. So I found that position quite confronting. Um, Just before we move on to the next introduction, um, you talk about these things being confronting. Are you drawn to films in cinema with these kind of abject, disgusting things? Or are you drawn to them because you enjoy them or because you don't? Um, I think it's actually a little bit of both. I'm really interested in them. And I'm interested in something like this exhibition that really provokes a response and a really kind of deep, maybe visceral response as well. So um, one of the films that I'm going to show tonight is um, eyes without a face and so of a face transplant. Um, something that is actually really, really difficult to watch. But these filmmakers very much are um, setting up um, spectators and making spectators uh, very uncomfortable and deep in their own I guess, what they're seeing, making them think about um, violence in other contexts as well. Excellent. Robin, you have perhaps the greatest title of anyone here tonight, which is Meat Scientist. Um, can you speak briefly about how you ended up in this particular field? Sure, thanks, Martin. I'd like to thank um, Acker for inviting me to be here today as well. It's really an honour to be on this very unusual panel. And when I got the email from Anna, I was intrigued because I'd never been asked to do this sort of thing before, and um, I had to call her straight away. So I'm a meat scientist and I work for CSO now. And in the, um, when I first went into meat science, I fell into it because I went for <laughs> another job and they said, hey, by the way, you're interested in this job to look at um, a quality condition called duck cutting in beef carcasses. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's the job I got. And then I got quite interested in it, and then I did my master's on this topic, and then I went ahead and did my PhD. But what I got really intrigued by is muscle. Muscle is really an amazing, um, it's an amazing part of the body. And the biochemistry and the anatomy and how the proteins work to contract and this really complex cascade of when you, can, you know, when you get a message from the brain to contract and it goes down to tell the muscle to contract. 
is really intriguing. There's a lot we still don't know. So I am um, totally fascinated by the biochemistry and the anatomy. And I do research. I do research on meat and improving meat quality. But if I go to dinner party, <laughs> I don't talk about um, the sort of places that I go. And we don't call them what you called it before. Um, we call them processing plants. And I was told in a processing plant, but I've called it the other word. I owe them a bottle of wine every time I said it. So they've changed their image as well. So um, I think I fell into it, but once I got into studying muscle, and I went through and did a uh, PhD in America on it, it just sort of sucked me in. But I also found that um, I, find, I find processing plants quite difficult places to be sometimes, especially the most confronting part that I found of the um, exhibition was the horses, like we know that in France people eat horses, and I love horses, I used to have a horse, I've owned horses and I didn't them. And the way they're hung is very, basically the same as how um, beef and lamb and pork carcasses are hung in the chillers. So I found that actually very confronting. So I was telling Martin before how I've, I've learned to um, divorce myself from that part of it that makes sense and I love the biochemistry and everything, and I go home to my lovely husband and children and all of that, but I don't sort of talk about the places I go to occasionally to look at Adrian here, because <laughs> he works with meat as well. Um, but I can, you know, I'm just totally not, totally okay. I had to go and get some lumps of fatty gland and tissue and stuff from the <coughs> processing plant with the full ass, and I just like threw and had to play out the piece of meat and, I think others have found this quite hard. Yeah. Um, you probably get asked this question a lot, Lance, but how did you become an environment? Okay. Thank you, and hello everyone. Um, yeah, environment, what can I say? Um, um, when I was growing up, I did have a bit of a dark obsession. You know, it was horror, it was gore, it was just all that stuff, loved it. At that stage, when I was younger, I wanted to pursue special effects makeup because really what I ultimately wanted to do was have the knowledge and the skill to create seven heads of everyone that's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> Including my parents. You know, I've had two, one a pike, here we go. But we're talking early to mid-90s, there wasn't the call for it, so it was like, oh, I really want to do it, but really, is it going to like, you know, give me a proper opportunity? So. When I was in high school, I was kind of besotted with this girl who um, she was kind of goth and dark and, you know, and I just wanted to hang out with her. And she told me she wanted to be in bar. And at that stage, I'm like, oh my god, are you serious? Like, I hadn't even thought about it. I didn't even think embalming still existed in modern society. So at that point, I completely ripped off her dream. <laughs> Became the embalmer, and I've got no idea what she ended up doing, but I know she's not an embalmer. Thanks, Julianne. Um, so, yeah, so I've been embalming for 20 years, 21 years actually. I've been in the industry and I've been a qualified embalmer for just over 17. So, it's um, yeah, it's been a good part of my life just hanging out with the dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nick, how did you end up in this particular area of, of your own work? I started off as an embalmer. <laughs> semi-educated opinion, but uh, look, I, I did my PhD at the uh, University of Pennsylvania and two of the people I hung out with a lot were Paul Rosson and Jonathan Haidt, who are really the you know, founders of the modern psychological study of disgust. 
And I didn't really do much work with them. I, I shared an office with John, and so there were always plastic dog turds and revolting pictures, and he'd always dart off to see the uh, secretarial staff and say, how disgusting is this? Um, as part of piloting his experimental materials. But I, so I've taken up an interest in disgust just as part of that, and as part of my research on um, dehumanization. So I do a lot of work on people's conceptions of what it is to be human, how we see certain people as less than human, uh, why that might be, how that might be. Um, and also in relation to me, uh, I've got students and colleagues who've done a couple of interesting projects relevant to that. Uh, one is how our opinions of people change when we see them with more skin exposed. So if you like objectification, what are the consequences of seeing someone in a swimsuit compared to casual clothes or in, uh, in a uh, male or female? Um, and it turns out we see people more like animals when, when more of their bodies are exposed. We see them as less competent, uh, less fully human. And also I've got a, um, done a little bit of work on how it is that we manage to cope with eating meat because people generally like animals at some level and yet are happy to eat them. What kind of mental contortions take place uh, in enabling us to do that? And essentially what happens is we uh, deny mind to those things which we, uh, we want to eat in order to reduce the cognitive dissonance. So I've got a dilettantish kind of interest in this area, uh, discussed on the one hand in relation to um, uh, dehumanization of the other, if you like, a bit of work on objectification, a bit of work on meat eating, uh, all interesting but a little bit shallow. <laughs> Very interesting. And speaking of meat eating, of course, um, Adrian, is it, was it always meat that interested you in cooking specifically? Oh, I've been very lucky. I've always grown up around like food, but uh, I've, I've sort of um, got a passion for meat. I love cooking meat. You know, if, if it's got a pulse, I reckon I can cook it, you know. Uh, and I haven't been proven wrong yet. Um, well, we've been doing this, uh, it looks like, you know, beautiful big horses uh, hanging up there. It looks like a couple of slaughtermen are having a bit of fun, aren't they? You know, just playing around. But um, basically, I, I, I love cooking meat, and, and, and the restaurant I have, we, we, we pride ourselves in getting whole bodies in and breaking them down and using every single part of the animal to, to make what we do. At the moment, it's, it's salami season, so I'm getting, I've had people with three picks for me, so we're making our own prosciutto, salami, capicolo, lardo. Lardo is um, what we call pork butter, or white prosciutto, or basically the fat fat from the, uh, from the pig that we cure and then slice it nice and thin. It's not very good for you, but it's still delicious. But, uh, that, that's, that's why I think I'm here. <laughs> As the token vegetarian, I think, on the panel, I'd like to say I'm appalled by Very sorry to hear <laughs> I do have a cure for you. It is actually crispy bacon or, uh, or pork crackling, if that doesn't work. <laughs> well, I think we should perhaps start with these clips. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we see them? Um, just that um, the first one is from Shannon Deloon, and I'm showing you the most important sequence and recognition um, on the panel already. This is... Um, uh, uh, it's been Wells film, um, Salvador Dali, that you probably know, and perhaps you've already seen before. But I also think of this as, um, you know, akin to the exhibition, it's the most beautiful, but also the most terrifying kind of um, graphic match that has ever been created in film history. It's 1929, and it's um, a surrealist film, so obviously um, uh, created through um, uh, dreams and uh, trying to access unconscious desires. Um, and what you see here is uh, kind of um, the way that the filmmakers begin the film. 
and they begin by attacking the literal thing that you were using to watch the film, that you were using to access the film. So that's the clip uh, that I like to show in the very first lecture for Cinema Studies 1A, Introduction to Cinema. Um, uh, it's very, it's you know, key and pivotal film in um, film history. And it's also really important in the way that it wants to shock viewers and maybe shock viewers into kind of thinking about the, uh, the history of the film that was made as a response uh, to the brutality of World War One um, and Cinema's very much had a lot invested in kind of engaging in that violence, showing it on the screen and hoping to kind of politicise and really activate their own audiences. And is there a second clip as well? There is. The other clip that I wanted to show is from John uh, Xu uh, and he again is a French filmmaker and uh, the clip is from Eyes Without a Face. We can even play if you like and I'll talk over it. It's, um, it's a clip that goes for a long time, so that's like a good clip as well. Um, the, it actually starts in just a minute. So this is um, made in 1959, um, and it uh, has been remade recently. Terrible, terrible remake. Sorry, Antonio Banderas. Sadly. Um, and um, this film, uh, this film, The, the Doctor, is actually a bitch who, um, you saw the entire film, uh, there's a prelude where he's um, out driving, he's driving with his young daughter, and he has a car accident, and it's his own fault. He's completely negligent. And um, he, as a result, the daughter's face is um, completely kind of shattered. Um, and because he's a vet, he, he um, likes to do a little bit of home surgery, as you can see, in his home. And the entire film is about luring young women to their country estate, where the vet also has his practice, where he will perform facial transplants on, uh, on his daughter to replace her face. Uh, really interesting the way that kind of um, shows a lot of this uh, facial transplant in great detail. So there are um, images that you might see of uh, kind of um, creating an outline around this uh, young girl's face and then um, starting to cut and clamp. And it's really an interesting clip, I think, because it really uh, is about, it's the opposite to Michelle and Jimmy, that it's about shock. This is about duration and endurance and really kind of pushing what we can, what we can kind of, you know, sit through, what we can sit through with our eyes open as well. 
So this is a, a kind of an illusion of a facial transplant as uh, the face is eventually cut, it's clamped, and then it's put onto the daughter's face. Um, at the risk of having you all permanently distracted by watching the screen, you might just talk while it's playing. Um, so what do you think is the appeal of suffering flesh in art and movies? Why do we seek it out? Why do we pay good money to see it? And we do. Um, there's, you know, huge money in um, very popular, you know, um, I guess, you know, horror films as well. And as excessive as possible, just pushing those boundaries. The examples that I showed you um, suggest that it's not a new thing as well. So there's a, a, an enduring kind of interest in seeing this and seeing the flesh. And I do think it's about shock and it's about confrontation. Uh, maybe it's also about um, uh, you know, creating a, a fantastic analogy to uh, another world. And maybe uh, some film theorists also suggest that from the safety of your film seat, you can watch or engage with what you ordinarily wouldn't engage with in real life. So the, the fantasy element kind of keeps you safe. Of course, there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the other side of that argument is that, the, you know, the violence on the screen the, you know, spurs violence in real life as well. So, uh, and the argument goes both ways, but the idea about kind of testing your endurance from the safety of your film seat, you know that you can walk out at any time, you know that you can lose your eyes. And something like um, Hitchcock's films, maybe the shower scene from Psycho, where he attacks um, the, the woman in the shower, uh, even though you never see the knife, you know, um, that's with the skin, and you can't really close your eyes because you hear that discordant sound as well. So it's really about kind of um, pushing the limits of your endurance, but knowing that spectators are relatively safe to watch that play that on the screen. If everyone stopped listening. <laughs> 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 subject of flesh in particularly interesting ways? Um, well, uh, there's a lot of really interesting ones. I think um, the people who make Cabin in the Woods, very new release that actually didn't get a distribution um, agreement in Australia. Yeah, I think that that's one. Um, I'm you know, always interested in people like um, David Cronenberg, of course, who just, you know, provoke prov prov finds new ways of showing us flesh on the screen. That's you know, quite alarming. Cronenberg's one. Um, and even um, someone like David Lynch kind of pushes it into a kind of surrealist environment as well. So here's another. I think I'd be amiss if I didn't ask about the um, cultural zeitgeist, which is that zombies are everywhere. So how do zombies play into these same ideas? Well, zombies are really interesting as well because they're also cannibals. You know, they're wanting to eat brains. So, absolutely, um, they're hugely popular at the moment. I don't know if I have an answer for why, except for that they maybe are kind of a, a multimedia creature. So we have the zombie shuffle, the parade, that happens annually here in Melbourne, that you've probably noticed, um, as, along with, you know, films as well. There's a tendency on the Gold Coast to make a lot of uh, zombie films at the Gold Coast Studios. So maybe there's something about, you know, it might be an analogy for consumption as well. 
Um, and I guess I wanted to ask about Passion of the Christ, um, of all things. I was shocked that there was a film about Jesus with almost none of Jesus' teachings, just Jesus' body being torn apart. Um, would you say that part of the same? Is, is the suffering flesh the meaning of the film? Perhaps Mal would suggest that that's the meaning of the film as well. Um, that would be his rationale, I'm sure. Um, uh, you know, another another idea would be the you know the absolute spectacle of the flesh as well, and the controversy of the you know the suffering body in this context. Incredibly controversial film filmmaker as well as we know. Well, let's move from fictional um, flesh onto the real thing. Um, I was hoping you could take us through perhaps some of the science of what happens when flesh actually dies. Is that far too broad a question? Um, <laughs> when flesh dies? So, um, basically, um, the muscles are all still living and all the um, tissues try to keep living and oxygen's been deprived because the blood's been packed, all the blood's come out. And so all of the um, cells try to keep living um, for a very long time, depending on uh, when the mortars are going to set in. So in fact, the interesting thing with um, making quality meat is that if the rigor mortis sets in too, far, too fast or too slow, or if the carcasses chill too fast, you actually um, detrimentally affect the quality of the meat because you um, get um, tough meat and various other quality problems. So um, the actinomycin, um, normally when they contract, contract your muscles, they, um, mycin is a protein in your muscle that binds on actin and does the shortening. So, um, and once it shortens, then let's go with some energy there. So the energy um, ceases to be there, which happens as rigor water sets in, uh, this protein binds onto the other one, and that's actually what results in rigor water sitting in. So alongside that, there's a whole lot of other things that change. Um, the fats all start to change because they start to oxidise. Um, there's Protease, there are enzymes there in the muscle that normally have to do with um, building the muscle and making sure it's maintained and looked after, and they start to um, break down the muscle structure um, postpartum. And in fact, when you age the meat, you know, for a period, you actually get that breaking down of muscle structure makes the meat more tender from these enzymes, and you get better flavour release as well. So, um, in a bit of a nutshell, there's a, there's a whole lot of like chemistry that happens as well. Um, can you explain quickly what we're looking at behind this? Yeah, so this is um, a transmission electron microscope picture of some muscle tissue that we um, took this year. We were looking at whether we could use a um, new technology to make meat more tender. And so this is really, really detailed, right down to the level of um, mus muscle cells are the longest muscles in the body. They also have the largest protein in the body, protein called Titan, which is the, the god of something that's really big Titan. Um, and this is arrived down at the um, micron level, so from one black band to the next in one micron, one micrometer, so it's really, really, really small. And that, in fact, that is where the action occurs of contraction, where um, the, thin, the, the paler band and the darker band actually work together to do the contraction, and they're the ones that also have to break down during this post-mortem ageing process for the enzymes to make the meat more tender. So those round bits that have the wiggly bits inside are some ghost um, mitochondria, which are also involved in, in 
energy part of the cell. So it's just, when I find these sort of images, I love doing microscopy, they're quite visual, and looking at muscle. Muscle is really an amazing tissue, and this one's like really detailed. So being able to get a really detailed picture of the muscle takes a fair bit of complex. Is that going to be a tasty steak? That's what I need to do. <laughs> Pretty tasty. Ghost, it means it's lost its, lost its you know, parts. It wasn't preserved during the preservation process. It was wax or something. Um, if there was, what's the one thing you could tell people about the journey from Slaughterhouse, which I'm not meant to say apparently, processing to the meat on their plate that you think would most surprise them? Completely different category from what you see in your daily work. 
Do you have to keep them in separate parts of your brain? I have to, yes, yes. So I've never, once, in fact, with the horses, the hive, the hive is still on. The hardest point for me is, and I always, I do it, I pretend that it's all fine. And I walk around and say, oh, you're in the, you're in the tour, right? It's all fine. I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so, um, and then we get to that point and I would just go, okay, fine. And then it's very, 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 vicious, very dangerous place to be with actually um, super strokes, very dangerous, very good blood. Are you surprised how squeamish some people can be about 
where their meat comes from? Uh, not at all, not at all. I mean, it, 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 it sort of, it sort of, I don't understand it in a way, I do understand it, but it's like um, if you're really squeamish about it, oh, I don't like to see the eyes of an animal's died, don't eat meat. Eat a tofu burger, eat something else, because really you're not doing the animal any justice. You know, we've, we've actually gone through a lot of trouble to kill this animal and breed it, and you know what, an animal's died. So if you're going to get squeamish about it, don't, don't eat it. You know, there's plenty of great vegetarian recipes and diets, and there's so much, so many other things you can eat. Um, I really believe that it, it, it is an, an, an honour or a right to be eating meat, uh, something to be taken very seriously. It's not something to be flippant about. You don't eat meat every day because it's easy. I think it's, it's, it's got to be, you've got to take it seriously. And I think that's really, really important. My, my, I have three young children, and they all know where sausages come from, from a squeaky pig. You know, they know this, and I'm very, very, it's very important that I take people that. I always think of Homer Simpson and his refusal to believe that ham and pork could come from the one magical animal. <laughs> but um, I have noticed on shows like MasterChef, they're referring to meat as protein, not even saying the word meat. Is this a swing? That, that is so lightweight, isn't it? You know what? <laughs> It's an animal, you know, you've got to kill it. That's, that's sort of where TV's gone a bit, they've gone so commercial that they don't want to upset the people, you know, that might be buying those little plastic trays that they get in coals. I'm never going to get a uh, supermarket sponsorship. <laughs> but I mean, that's what they're trying to do, make it sort of, they make it so easy so you can go to coals and buy your, your packet of meat with your cell phone on it. What, what a waste of time, really. I, I just think it's, it's gone down. I'm actually going to have uh, lunch with Gary uh, in a couple of days. I'll tell him that, don't worry. <laughs> well, if we can move on quickly from animals to a, a different kind of animal, being us, um, could you let's talk us through quickly what's the, what happens when you receive a word? Okay, well, I, I guess as an embalmer, I'm a manipulator of the flesh. You know, so I'm trying to stop it from doing what it naturally wants to do once we die. So our blood is our life force when we're alive, but it also contains dormant bacteria like Clostridium wilki that once we die, it instantly wants to start the whole decomposition process. You know, like we, we're created to just like disappear apart from bones, of course, when we die. So, um, so for my everyday job, obviously when I am embalming, there are different levels of embalming that's utilised within the funeral industry. There's, there's specific embalming where a body has to be fully embalmed and therefore it may be going to a vault or maybe sent overseas or maybe due to cultural reasons the families want to view or take it home for a week or so. Um, that's a full embalm. Then many funeral homes also do what's known as temporary preservation, which is more of an aesthetic embalm. We're just trying to like remove blood, so that's obviously done by arterial injection. I'm raising arteries throughout the body, injecting the chemical through the artery, and that therefore it's pushing through the vascular system, pushing the blood out, and I drain the blood through the jugular, or corresponding veins to arteries throughout the body. Removal of the blood is essential. It, it clears hypostasis, which is uh, the discoloration that you know we associate with deceased people. When I look at that 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 body on, on the pillows in there, I'm like, that's so dead. It's, it's not hypostasis. It's got the grays, all the tones of dead flesh. So um, so we're either embalming to preserve fully, or we're embalming for aesthetic reasons. So just pretty much incorporate that viewing process and make it a little more aesthetically pleasing. Interesting. Um, how, 
Has any of those, have those techniques changed in the 20 years you've been in the industry? Uh, no, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pretty much, when we look at embalming, we've got ancient embalming, which in my opinion is creating human beef jerky. <laughs> I can't describe it any other way. Then over the centuries, things were changing, and it got to a point where it was discovered that arsenic was really useful for preserving like tissue. So particularly during like the, the American Civil War when there were obviously many deaths and they were embalming with arsenic. And to this day there are some travelling sideshows in America where like body pieces or like mummies are coming out and realising, hang on, this is a this is a real body and it's like laced with arsenic. They're probably leftovers from the Civil War. <laughs> so um, so it hasn't changed that much in the time I've been there. These days the, the chief chemicals from aldehyde or aldehyde-based chemicals. Maldehyde is probably <coughs> the most common, but it's also a gas suspended in a liquid, so therefore it's very fuming. It's, it's difficult for us to work around. So glutaraldehyde is also used as well, which it's, it's, they say if vaporized glutaraldehyde is worse for us, but you know, we're, not, we're not bubbling away our environment fluids. It's all fine. So the process hasn't changed that much. I, I really can't see it, apart from the introduction of plastination, which has been pioneered by um, Dr. Gunther, you know, the German fella. Um, but that apparently is at a cost of about $40,000 per body. <laughs> so that'll never, like, you know, see its way into the funeral industry. So we'll just stick to how we're doing. I can't see any great challenges for the future. I keep coming back to this idea of, of squeamishness and disgust tonight, which we'll get onto in a minute. Are there still parts of your job that make you squeamish? Yes. <laughs> You know, like obviously, there, there are so many different faces to death. We know that. You know, like, I have a romantic view of death. I'm all about memorialization, but sadly, not everyone dies the same. So as much as I advocate that, you know, like, we should look at classic forms of memorialization, not everyone dies the same. And also, modern medicine is making death ugly. Unfortunately, people are obsessed with wanting to live as long as they can, or therefore they're their ill relatives, we want them to be here as long as we can. All that's really happening is they're kept in hospitals, they've been pumped with fluids, they're, they're bloating up, and it's just making death so hideous. Like people, you know, I'm saying, yeah, get a death mask, go for portraiture, but they look so ravaged that it's difficult. So um, that, that's a bit of a problem. So live fast, stay young, leave those good Well, you know, I, I, think, I think we should, you know, enjoy our life, live the best we can, but also be a little more in tune with our mortality and not be so selfish. <laughs> you mentioned formalisation. Can we talk a little bit about the death marks? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. For all the years I've been embalming, and I love my job, I absolutely love it. You know, it brings me a lot of satisfaction when I'm able to assist families with their grieving process. After like many, many years of doing just that, you know, at times it feels just a touch repetitive. So I've been looking at diversifying my industry and obviously trying to like, you know, pull on what I know and the industry I'm in. So I've been uh, revisiting classic memorialization. Um, I absolutely love the old Victorian postmodern photography. If anyone's ever had the opportunity to see examples of that, and I see no reason why we can't be like doing portraiture of the dead. You know, it's all about knowing how to do it right. You know, like families come in at viewings and they're frequently, can we take a photo? And I'm like, yeah, of course you can take a photo. But the problem is, 
They're taking a, an image, a bug, someone in a coffin, they're generally using flash photography, which makes them look more dead than the Aesthetically, it's not an appealing sort of image, whereas I'm more about, you know, get the deceased on like a bed or something, like, you know, go more profile. Because in death, you know, and the one thing I say, medicine is making death ugly. It doesn't matter how bloated you are, but if you take a, a photo from profile, it's, it's, it's more recognisable as that person. So there's all these tricks of the trade to like do it and do it effectively and do it with a bit of class. Like obviously black and white photography. <laughs> Moving on to the death mask. Well, the death masks are so incredibly rich in history. Like, you know, like prior to photography, and sadly photography probably saw the end of death masking. But, you know, to lose someone and to have that window of opportunity to decide, yes, you know, I'm going to have a sculpture made, I can tell you now, like, years down the track, when you look at that, you'd be so grateful that you made that call to have this relic left behind. You know, essentially, um, I'm into capturing these, these moments in history, and, and the window of opportunity is, is so small. So, you know, I'm trying to educate people to... Um, you know, maybe look outside the box when it comes to like death and memorialisations and what seems a bit, oh, I don't know if I can do that now, you obviously appreciate the time. May, may I show an example? Sure. which um, is a very cool nickname, a bit like Dr. Doom. So I apologise if you don't like it. Um, what does make flesh appealing in some circumstances and disgusting in others? What, what's the uh, quite arbitrary line between the two, do you think? 
I'm not sure it's arbitrary. I mean, it's more disgusting when it's dead than when it's alive, and it's more disgusting when it's uh, the skin is breached or uh, altered in some way, or when uh, it's disfigured. So I think, you know, if you look in here, everything is being played, uh, or is headless, uh, or is in other ways um, distorted. And, I mean, flesh isn't the only thing that disgusts people, and it's also one of the things that people don't recoil, recoil from when people love flesh. Uh, to eat, to touch, you know, and they adorn it. Uh, it's only under certain conditions, and I think they often boil down to one of the main elicitors that are discussed, which is, uh, in, in the jargon of the discipline, uh, violations of the body envelope. So times when the, the, the grind of the body, if you like, is is violated or breached. I mean, the, the, the Bewell clip, um, that's got it all. It's got violation of the envelope, you know, the, the eyeball being sliced, and it's got viscosity, which is another one of the core elicitors of disgust. I mean, there's a range of things that are disgusting. You know, certain animals, uh, uh, viscous things, uh, bodily waste products, death, uh, uh, revolting actions, revolting people. Uh, it's it's uh, evolved from this emotion which was primarily just about making sure that uh, contaminated things don't enter the body. Hence the disgust face, which is closing, closing the nostrils and the mouth, making sure that uh, distasteful things don't enter. And it's broadened out into this culturally very rich thing where certain acts, certain groups of people uh, are disgusting as well. But violations of the body envelope and death uh, are conditions of the body which uh, are um, very likely to cause disgust of a certain particular type. I mean, disgust comes in many flavours. Interesting. Um, I was interested in what you were saying earlier as well about what we have to do to convince ourselves it's, it's okay to eat animals. You know, the idea that some animals are completely acceptable to eat, other ones we wouldn't dream of. Can you speak a little bit about that, the gymnastics we have to do? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of those things where, like a lot of studies, once you show it, people say, well, that was obvious. Uh, but um, you find a very strong negative relationship between the amount of mind people think an animal has and how edible they think it is. Um, uh, not always, so people don't think that insects and worms have much mind, but they're also revolted by those. So it's not a perfect correlation, but generally speaking, the more we think the creature at one point had human-like mental capacities, uh, more reluctant we are to eat it because we know it causes harm which we can empathise with. Um, and uh, even simple manipulations like telling people, we do this to, to studies at the university, you show people a picture of a cow or a sheep, and you say this cow or sheep is in a pasture outside of Melbourne having a great life, uh, and uh, you know, how much does it have the capacity to think, plan, feel, uh, have consciousness, etc. Uh, and you get another group of uh, participants to uh, and tell them the same things, but say this sheep is about to go to the processing plant. Uh, uh, and, and you find that the meat-eating students uh, ascribe much less mind to it when they're simply reminded that this is actually going to get slaughtered. than if they don't, people are sort of preparing themselves for the legitimacy of, of eating this animal um, when they're reminded that's what's going to happen. Vegetarians don't do the same thing. Vegetarians recruit disgust in order to, no seriously, uh, to, in order to um, make their uh, revulsion sort of morally strong. So, so, so disgust goes both ways. And plays into my theory that people own, people are happy to eat fish just because they don't make any noise. Is, is, do you think there's some truth to that? We don't see them suffering in the same way? 
Well, that's probably true, yeah. Uh, mind you, they've got sliminess, you know, going against them. So, so fish are not uncomplicated either. <laughs> and sliminess equals disgust. Well, sliminess is one of the things that equals disgust. So, I mean, sliminess is often acute of putrefaction and decay, which is one of the original triggers of disgust. Uh, and, and, of course, the things here, uh, they're not disgusting because they're slimy or shiny or got maggots or in other ways of putrefying. They don't smell. It's a different kind of cold, dry disgust from the kind of hot, moist, pathogen-type uh, disgust, I think. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, you know, um, sliminess, smelliness, uh, uh, you know, big disgust predictors. And if, if you don't mind me saying, there's a huge amount of work now on disgust and individual differences in disgust. And it turns out people who are more prone to disgust uh, uh, have a range of interesting differences from others. They're more politically conservative, they're more xenophobic, they're more homophobic. Uh, there's a range of ways in which people's propensity to experience disgust is related to a, a range of social attitudes and also to a range of mental disorders. So people find that uh, higher levels of disgust proneness underlie um, body injury or injection phobias, eating disorders, sexual dysfunctions. There's an enormous range of forms of uh, aberration that go with having a heightened propensity to experience disgust. And I guess this, this is quite a large question, is what are the implications, do you think, of seeing ourselves and other human beings as made of meat? Well, I don't... I haven't thought about that question exactly, but... Um, Generally speaking, people who see a small difference between uh, humans and animals uh, tend to be less likely to uh, have um, strong prejudices. So, for instance, and there's a whole theory at the moment out there in social psychology saying that uh, it is this tendency to uh, distance humans from animals, to see humans as being a unique species in creation uh, that underlies the tendency to ascribe uh, lesser humanness to, to uh, our group members. So that doesn't really answer your question, but I think if you see yourself as part of me, you're essentially saying, I'm a mammal. Uh, I'm an animal at some level. I'm not qualitatively different from this, uh, this other creature. And that presumably ought to have positive implications for how you deal with nature. I guess just one last question before we'll open it up to a Q&A is a very big one. Are we beings with souls, or are we complicated meat robots? <laughs> is it mine? <laughs> well, I'm not a meat robot. Uh, I'm not sure I have a soul either, but one of the things, again, disgust polices that boundary. You know, Paul Rosen says, uh, disgust is the emotion that purifies the body, polices the purity of the body and the um, something of the soul, I should remember it. Uh, sanctity of the soul. So I think um, recognize, thinking of ourselves as being sort of a different order, uh, a different ontological order to animals uh, as, as, as spirits is something that disgust enables us to, to, to feel. I'm not like that. I'm not an animal. I'm above that. I don't die. Well, um, I'd have to go for complicated meat, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... Um, you know, like the soul, where you know we all speak about soul. Um, I respect all religions. I've been around so much death and seen so much like tragedy and sadness that I guess it makes it a little more difficult for me to believe that there are greater beings looking out for us. Um, you know, like I, yeah, I, I'm, 
yeah, I've got a complicated thing. <laughs> as horrible as it sounds, babe, it's it's probably fact. And once again, that's nothing to be too kind of freaked out about either. You know, right now we're here, like we're existing, we're enjoying our life, and that's great. Even if we are any complicated meat robots. <laughs> Going to a QA, and I'm sure there must be some questions in the audience. Anybody? Like formaldehyde, as bad as it is, 
It's found in most cosmetics, it's found in soaps and shampoos, so like most people are inadvertently applying like these chemicals used to embalm bodies to their faces. So, you know, like there, there are environmental effects, there's nothing we can really do about that. Um, the chemicals are trying to evolve, you know, so um, for example, I champion chemicals are one that are trying to create more like user-friendly, environmentally friendly chemicals, but only to the point where we're still achieving, or they're still achieving, like, satisfactory embalming results. So, so, so would you prefer to use the partial embalming process to the full embalming process? Uh, look, as far as aesthetically, for aesthetic reasons, partial embalming, yes. You know, like, full embalming is more like rigid huge, that's when you want a body to last as long as possible. That said, it's only like the tissue and the protein that embalms, so people who are quite obese, and people who are obesity is more of an issue these days, that doesn't embalm, so in time that will break down to a sludge. How do you prepare uh, uh, meat for electron microscopy? I think you probably you probably freeze it, yeah? Um, to be honest, I didn't do it, but um, so, but so if you wanted to look at um, light microscopy, you would be right to freeze it. But electron microscopy, um, <laughs> it's chemicals that you use, and now someone else did this for me, and so it's actually so it preserves all of the structure, and you need to gradually replace it, keep changing the chemicals, so then it's more and more. Um, concentrate so to preserve the structure um, as you change the solution over seven days. So I don't know the exact details of the chemicals that we use. So these images were cut um, and visualised and um, the CSR uh, Animal Health Laboratory at um, John. Yeah. Oh, you mean the fat or the protein? You mean? We would use um, fat. If you do not use it, you, you can attach. If you want to know where mice, and I love the, some of these proteins that are made, of Titan anchors anchors mice into the Z line, prevents overstructure of muscles. So you can put a you can put a, attach a label, attach a sort of antibody that will bind to the to the Titan or to the mice, and then lift them across. You actually then you have a gold tag attached to it, and you can actually visualise where the gold is. So it's a really amazing you know, chemistry and how you bind as well. The beginning of uh, Mel Gibson's film, Apocalypto, there's a, a scene where the, the hunters are chasing down deer or something like that, and it ends up being killed, and uh, one of the characters cuts out the heart and eats it raw. And so I guess it's kind of a, a question of um, the amino acids and the pros and cons of eating meat raw and straight out of the body as opposed to cooked and eight, eight weeks old. <laughs> 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 uh, I think if you like it warm. <laughs> I prefer to cook it a little bit, but I've eaten plenty of meat that's, uh, that's very rare, blue. I've eaten raw meat. Uh, I was making salami the other day and I was, there's the raw, raw pork, the pork, raw pack, raw, 
or fat with some salt in it, and I was eating that raw just to taste it to make sure I got the right amount of salt in it. Um, I've got no problem eating uh, raw meat. I think Australia has some of the cleanest meat in the world. Um, we're very proud of it. Uh, scientists and farmers have done a very, very good job to keep it that way. So I've got no problem eating raw meat. Hunters, it's more of a, I think, a, 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 a trophy, I think, to, uh, to, eat the, uh, to eat the heart straight away or drink the blood. Um, yeah, go for it if you like it. <laughs> a little bit of salt on it and a little bit of cayenne pepper, I reckon. Okay, so there's, sorry, so there's, are there actual differences in amino acid levels? No, but pre-rigged meat, I mean, some of the um, Asian countries, they are sort of animal and they take the meat straight away. Pre-rigged meat is actually very, it's tender. It's actually, and then it becomes tough when the rigged water's process sets in, and then it tenderises again. But no, the amino acids are the same. Um, so everything's basically preserved with pre-rigged, fresh versus later. Um, but some of, the, some of the organ meats are, it's interesting, when I go to another country, I look at how they, um, was by their meat. You go to China, Beijing, and they have a lot of organ meat. I didn't see any muscle meat. They eat a lot of organs there. So it's really interesting to learn about a culture from, you know, what they, like you said, the supermarket so far. A lot of organ meat. Which has a lot of nutritional value, a lot of the organs. We don't seem to eat them hardly at all in Australia, really, do we? Well, I don't. I, I love them. I do a 14 course offal dinner at occasionally. I'm surprised at all the people that love blood and guts. They just come out from the cracks in the, in the floors, you know, they love it. Can I just say that in my world and the association I have with stuff, there's certain offals I can handle. Like I, I love a good pate, you know, a bit of lamb's fry here. Um, I had sweet breads not so long ago and I had it three nights in a row. <laughs> it was good, but brain, really, I ate brain for the first time a few weeks ago. A friend has a restaurant. Every time I've gone there, I'm like, should I do it? Should I do it? I did it once ever again. It's just, it's too close to home for what I do for a job. <laughs> Offal's, offal's quite nice. I like eating offal. And uh, probably one of the challenging things that I've done is uh, bull's testicles. People sort of, we, we call it cowboy caviar or, uh, <laughs> or prairie oysters sometimes. But they're, they're sort of like a, it's almost like a cross between egg yolk and uh, chicken in flavour. It's chicken breast. It's sort of funny sort of flavour. They're probably the most tamest thing I've ever eaten when you consider it offal, when you consider liver and tripe and kidney and those sorts of things and blood and brains and and pig's uterus was something I cooked up, which was actually outstanding. It was a beautiful, beautiful dish. See, like, the testicles, though, like, are made up of epididymis. Is that what it's called? It's that fine strands that produce sperm. Like, when I see people on those reality shows, like, oh, I'm into the night, and I see them as This one's for Robin, but I'm sure Adrian will want to chime in here. Um, what about the future of synthetic meats? I've seen people like starting to make organs and stuff like that synthetically. Is there going to be much of a market for that? I had a, oh, I had a visiting scientist from Canada, and he had a great answer to this because around the time he was at the start of this year, was when there was all that um, publicity about synthetic meat, and he said you can, you can culture meat cells. You can make and he said it's really, really expensive, that's $10,000 per, almost per gram to do it. And then he said, all you need to do is then you've got to, to keep the culture going, you've got to actually um, use fetal calf syrup. So you've got to kill animals to get the stuff, to keep the stuff growing. And then you think, well, how can we do this better? And you go, well, you need something that 
reproduces itself and grows very efficiently and lives very fast. And you go, oh, like a pig. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so really, the economics of it and how you keep it going in terms of certainly muscle cell culture is just nowhere near feasible compared to we want to eat meat with animals, or unless you make it out of vegetable protein. Why would you bother? <coughs> really, what's wrong with taking in a good bloody steak? You know, 400 grams of prime rib beef or something. Uh, I know it's probably the idea that they want to actually, you know, uh, change what we eat and, and, you know, hopefully we won't have to kill animals, we can eat um, great food. But when we get to it and they make it cheap enough, I'll be the first one to put my hand up and give it a go. But the 10 grand of steak, my God. My question's about embalming. Um, could you ever embalm a person forever? Like if you did a full embalm, would it be akin to a taxidermy in your favourite cat if you wanted to keep someone around? Or is that what's the longest amount of time if you did a full embalming that someone would yeah, look okay before they start to deteriorate? Okay, obviously um, there's a there's a lot of um, factors that come into that one. There's intrinsic factors which have to do with the condition of the body itself and also extrinsic. Now, um, these days, we tend to, like, when families sign documentation for embalming, we make it pretty clear that nowadays there's really no such thing as an indefinite embalm. It's also environmental. You know, if you have a deceased body and actually warm, dry, warm, dry, like almost breezy kind of environment, that'll help dry it out and actually help preserve it. Um, nowadays, with um, full embalming, um, you know, if someone's quite slim, you know, and the chemicals are good and everything's right, they could last quite a while. But once again, it comes back to medicine and a lot of um, medications that people are on in life, and it has a profound effect on the embalming process and how well they will hold up. So, unfortunately, I would never say that you could embalm someone indefinitely. They will eventually decay, but just not in that organic sense. Oh, yes, yes. I've seen cases exhumed which were involved 10 years previously and I was amazed by their condition and I've seen them come up 12 months later and it was pretty like, <laughs> So there's so many factors that nowadays obesity and um, medicine is sort of making it a lot difficult for us. Do we have any, like one, no, we've got
go for them. You know, there's also that means that they're talking about these days where they're going to freeze us in liquid nitrogen and then put us on a big conveyor thing, which is basically going to break us down to powder. <laughs> and then you're left with quite, quite a lot of like mass. Like I hear it's like probably, you know, at least kilos and kilos and kilos of this powder. But this is something we're discussing too. So, you know, like burials, we're running out of space. You know, we have to really address burials. It's a waste of time. You know, like many good gravers when you photograph blow up on, you know, one of those those banners and put in your own garden, you know, like bring, bring the grave to you. Apart from that, you know, obviously cremation is more popular and that's why we're going to look at means of federalizing cremains and probably looking at the fact that cremation is going to be more obvious future. Got a really quick question for Lance. I um, read an article a long time ago about a culture that, oh, five, about five years ago, a culture that um, stood with the body and um, they sat with the body in the open for some time. And they noticed over the last recent years that they much more preservatives have been. They've been eating, so it changed the way the body. Um, they had it sort of on display in the village, so it was a sort of a, a sort of simple culture. I just wondered if you noticed that the preservatives in the bodies that you work with? Well, once again, um, you know, when I, when I see a lot of difficulties with cases, um, I can never sort of narrow it down what it may be. Once again, I tend to sort of say, you know, modern medicine, that's, it's just wrecking it all. Um, you know, preservatives in that, I'm sure, are having a profound effect on us. You know, like food these days, you know, there's so many good, wholesome foods out there, but there's some real crap too, and, you know, we're taking it on board. I haven't, I'm not sure the effect that will have. As far as, um, is this like European cultures? See, in Europe, it's very common when you die that they'll keep the body at home. And I think that's a great thing, I think it's good, but in this country, it can't be done unless there's embalming. European climate's not conducive to that, so they probably would see mild changes as opposed to what we do here. You know, like once again, it all comes down to anything goes. You know, like, like I, I think that memorialization should be functional. I think it's great to, you know, like have have artwork, or but even have something that's going to be more utilized. Like, imagine how cool it would be that if you had remains of someone. And I personally think that remains in an urn is like limbo. You know, I think it's it's better to maybe divvy them up and do a few things. Like, could you imagine, like, ashes finally ground in, in an hourglass? Or even an egg timer, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Um, once again, like, in my, I've got my other bag here, and now it's another one in the spot. Yeah. <laughs> 
Lance needs his own television show. <laughs> Music, gore, death, dying, more exhibition.